the Giving Gifts Podcast, a podcast for real people to share real stories, navigating how to use their gifts in this weird world. I've actually been thinking a lot about what I mean when I say that. Real people, real stories. And what I wanted the Giving Gifts Podcast to be was a space for people to get to just share honestly without an agenda or any desired outcome, just a space where your experience is important and it's needed and it's valued. I wanted this podcast to be an exploration of who a person is, their story, maybe what they do, but more importantly, why they do what they do. Today, I have two friends joining me for what I believe to be a very important conversation. Dan and Gabby Jimerson are both mental health professionals, parents to their sweet daughter and very special dog, a friend to many and best friends to each other. This conversation is one I have been hoping to have for quite some time. And when receiving the challenging news two weeks ago that a friend of mine is no longer with us after a long and difficult battle with mental health, I knew this conversation needed to happen sooner rather than later. The hope of the Giving Gifts podcast is that through these conversations, we, as a collective of human beings, are able to see the need and value in our own stories and in the stories of others. We know that all stories include suffering and challenges as well as celebration and joy. The Giving Gifts as an organization is committed to creating resources to come alongside people to identify their gift. And when I talk about a gift, I'm talking about more than just your strengths or what you're good at. Your gift is a combination of all your strengths and struggles. It's the hope and vision that through conversations like this one, we can continue to challenge This conversation around struggling from shame to possibility. You'll hear how Gabby, Dan, and actually even my own struggles have led to opportunities to acknowledge what it is we really care about and how we can do that on a daily basis. Please, 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 please take in consideration that if you find yourself in a place where you feel alone or isolated, and this podcast brings up anything for you that you would like to process, there are some extra resources in the description as well as all of our contact information. Um, so this is my wife, uh, Gabby, Gabrielle, but she goes by Gabby. Um, three words that I would used to describe my wife. Uh, the first one would be um, Aragorn, which is kind of nerdy, but I thought about that a lot for this test. And for, for if you don't know who that is, Cassie, or if anyone doesn't know what that is, that's one of the main characters in Lord of the Rings, right? With the sword and the adventure. So okay. I would describe Aragorn. The second word would be blue. Um, so when I think of uh, Gabby, I think of um, the ocean, and I think of calmness, and I think of peace, and that's oh. what you have been in my life. And there's also another link to another kind of nerdy book series that we actually started reading when we were dating. And there's this group of characters in there 
that are in this uh, group that describes themselves as blue. That's kind of the name of the sisters and that's kind of like magic organization. And their whole thing is they're driven by purpose and meaning to, to find causes and help people with specific causes. And that I think is your, your jam in life is meaning and purpose and um, helping other people. So super nerdy, the first two. And then the last one I was thinking of was a uh, light. So that's how I described Gabby. She's been a light in my life. And uh, lately, as I see her career taking off and your passions taking off, I see her being a light in others' lives as well. So that's it. Aragorn, blue, and light. Yeah. Wow. That's so nice. High five to you. High fives. Okay. Okay. Is it my turn? Okay. So mine are hyphened hyphenated there's still three words but they're hyphened so the first one um i would describe my husband as um deeply generous so when we got married we had to negotiate early on um you know when or how or why we would allow people into our homes um or when or why or how we would give people our money or clothes or anything that we owned. My husband operates from this worldview that why do we have anything um, unless it's to give to other people, which is I, I love so much. Um, so you can imagine early on me being really introverted um, and walking into our home and having guests there who needed to crash out for the evening or crash out for the night because my husband wanted to share a space with them. Um, but me really needing warning for that, some some heads up. So we had some conversations about that, but I love that. The next one I would describe you as is um, <sighs> enviously confident. So I so much admire your confidence. Daniel is somebody who knows who he is and who he isn't, and he has no problem with either of those things. He steps into a room and he totally owns who he is, his knowledge and his wisdom, his presence. And then he fully acknowledges where he doesn't have wisdom or doesn't have a presence and he has zero problem either way. And I love that. And the last one is super hot because obviously. With an A. Yeah. Super, super hot. Because <laughs> obviously. Because <laughs> obviously. I like it. I feel loved. You I are loved. Seen. Thank you. So I love starting, starting off that way because I think yeah, so often we don't even know how we're perceiving one another. And I knew that you guys were going to have good answers because actually like, so the first time I met you two, I, the first time I met you two, I was babysitting for you, actually. So, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, my and, gosh. And it's funny because as you guys are recounting like these words that you're using for each other, I, yeah, I feel like that was my first experience of both of you. Like I could see both, all three of those words being true. And then even the more that I've gotten to know you guys, I just see more and more of that being true. I think, yeah, I mean, immediately I walked in and I was like, so what do you guys do? And you're like, oh, well, we're both mental health professionals. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, that's so cool. Um, and then even as we get got to continue our own conversations, just to keep learning about, yeah, how much you guys care about people and how much you care about development and a person um, really fully getting to embrace being alive and everything that encompasses and how you guys do that 
the cool thing is I've gotten to see how you do that in your own home to like mm-hmm. also learning more about how you do that to connect with other people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think being in someone's house gives you a, a, a really big perspective on them because you get to see what are the dishes look like? What does the laundry look like? What's their dog like? That says a lot about a person. So. Yeah, true. And you guys have a really good dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even what books does that person have? I mean, I think I started reading a book while you guys were gone and you were like, oh, that's a great book. You should take it. And I did. And, and I think that says that absolutely like attest to Gabby, what you just said of, of Dan's generosity to just say, okay, you need this, like, take it. I don't need it. Have it. Um, so yeah, I'm curious of where this conversation will go. I think we could go in so many fun directions. Um, and like I mentioned, you both are mental health professionals and you're married, which I think is really special. Um, so I want you to be able to share a little bit of just your individual backgrounds and what led you to the professional side of mental health. And then also how does your professional life integrate with your marriage? Okay. Would you like to start first? Cause I started first last time. Sure. Okay. So my part of my background, um, is that, you know, that really influenced my career choice. So I was, uh, born and raised in a Christian church. Um, to a comfortably middle-class family. My dad was a law enforcement officer. My mom was a physical therapist. I have an older brother um, who's incredible and um, really great childhood. Um, I love my family. I was well-loved. I'm so grateful. I learned a lot of things about, um, you know, how religion and um, how to love people well and my parents really modeled a lot of things excellently for me and my brother. Something that I didn't realize until I was an adult was that um, I wasn't really taught how to um, acknowledge hard things. I didn't really have a vocabulary for difficult experiences or difficult emotions. And then I also realized as an adult too that I was taught a lot of incorrect, just straight up lies. about gender roles, about what um, what my role as a female is in the world um, from my church. So, and those things have obviously impacted me profoundly, especially in our marriage. Um, but what really, what I really felt the pull into a mental health profession is I actually got my bachelor's in psychology and I hated it, hated it. It was bachelor's in science and most of my degree was just about like brain chemistry and synapses and what are the pathways and all this stuff, which is really important information to have, but I hated it. So I graduated, had no idea what I was going to do. And then I started work at, as a um, front desk assistant at a church's counseling department, pastoral care. And I saw a lot of people coming in who needed help, like serious mental health care. And there was just none available to them. Um, and it was that time when I just felt this pull that like, I could help fill that gap of, um, you know, meeting people where they are, who had needs with quality mental health care. Um, and that's, that's where I started. And then kind of forming my niche is just my passions. I'm mostly a relationship couples therapist with some trauma here and there for kicks. And, um, you know, I deal a lot with, um, 
how harmful religious indoctrination is impacting marriages and sexuality and stuff like that. And I don't know, I think as far as how our profession affects our marriage, I think it's hilarious. It's, it's humorous. So, for, for yeah, sure. it's so funny. We come from, we view mental health from really different lenses. Mine is right. And Daniel's is in um, progress. <laughs> um, so we get to argue about theory and modality and you know the way we see people and work with people and then applying it to our own lives is also hilarious um you know as much as we try to utilize the tools we we give other people sometimes it can come off as therapizing each other which evolves into an even more dramatic conflict I think you're supposed to do that you're not supposed to do that no so my background uh grew up with uh my parents, who are still together, um, very strong marriage, grew up in a, in a strong house uh, with my, my dad working as a chemical engineer, and my mom was a uh, stay-at-home mom for a while, and uh, eventually she actually came into this field, so now my mother's a practicing clinical counselor in New Mexico. Uh, she's an incredible uh, therapist as well, um, as my wife. Um, so growing up, I was exposed to mental health primarily through uh, the first way would be my my youngest brother um, is autistic. Um, at the time, um, it was Asperger's, and now it's it's uh, known as autistic and some other things that he struggled with throughout the years. But uh, going back and forth to doctor's appointments, meds, and then later on, uh, going to hospitals when he was struggling with some higher level stuff um, that really exposed me to mental health in a big way. And then a lot of addiction, not in my my primary family, but in my extended family, a lot of addiction, uh, both grandparents and uh, some other people throughout my family. Um, so those are my two big uh, exposures to mental health and, and really medical stuff in general was was through those stories in my life. And so when, as I was as I was getting older, I decided to leave uh, the state that I was growing up in and uh, go out of state uh, completely on my own for college and while I was there, um, my relationship with alcohol became very dysfunctional. And then later on down the road, uh, my relationship with drugs became very, very dysfunctional. And so I identify today as, as an addict, alcoholic. Um, by that, I, I mean, uh, that's how I talk about myself, but I'm in recovery for quite some time. But that ended up uh, with me doing my own stay in, in rehab. And that's what actually took me out to California. Um, it was almost a uh, I could say like a spiritual gateway that opened up. There was something about growing up and watching the OC. I don't know if Cassie can remember that show. <laughs> Maybe that dates us, dates me a little bit, but. California, um, here we, we come. come. That's great. <laughs> but there's something about this area that always seemed like destiny, divine, you know, future telling. I don't really know what it was, but something about this always pulled me here. And. For some reason, um, this is where I ended up uh, going for treatment. So um, over a decade ago, I came to California, uh, the most random place that I could have ended up, Orange County, California. Um, and that is where I got my real exposure to mental health was through, um, you know, your standard idea of rehab groups, uh, therapy, meds, all that, all that good stuff. Um, I moved from there years later into doing group fitness for rehab. So I got a personal training certification 
and I was uh, um, up in LA County, San Diego County, Orange County, uh, doing rehabs for clients, uh, doing rehab groups for clients that were looking to get into fitness and kind of add that to their recovery routine. And that was that was the jam for me. I was coming from audio engineering into personal training, and it was night and day for me. So I immediately uh, finished up this uh, bachelor's degree that my addiction had cut in half. I finished that up at the same school she went to for her undergrad, and I rolled straight from that into graduate training for my therapy license. Um, and so currently, um, I still work in the rehab field. I've never really left the rehab field. I've done some private practice, but my my heart is definitely addictions. So right now I'm working uh, full time for a nonprofit for women um, coming from human trafficking, substance abuse backgrounds in Orange County, and uh, we're, we're blessed to provide them with housing and treatment for at least 90 days or longer. I'm one of the therapists on staff, and uh, and that's been a huge huge deal. I love going to work every day, and um, it really is uh, purpose and meaning. It's really where I'm supposed to be. Um, and currently that's what I'm doing. So in our marriage, the way that therapy has impacted us is I think we were both really blessed because before the marriage even started, we were doing, um, self-help groups, you know, so I, I worked a, a type of a 12 step program for self-help mm-hmm. and, um, it, it was a huge blessing. I mean, it's like the most intense premarital counseling you can think of is to actually do one of those programs all the way through because as you're going into it into the marriage you know yourself with eyes wide open your character defects your struggles your talents um and so going into that into this relationship into our marriage i think that the mental health background the 12-step background has been a huge asset for us and um, i take no credit for that that had nothing to do with me Uh, that just happened to be what we were blessed to get into. And so now when we argue about things, it can get pretty deep and complicated, but it's really beautiful. And I would, I would change it. And I think that's one thing that, you know, when people ask us about our marriage and, you know, the secret to marriage or like why we're happy or why we get along, that's pretty much always our first go-to is the 12 steps for both of us. I was an Al-Anon myself, had an excellent sponsor. Um, And there's just something about, um, uh, I don't know, being willing and having a space to be held accountable and to really do some introspection, uh, like Daniel said, with, um, you know, my defects, my failings, my strengths, um, maybe my natural tendencies where I might be a little bit weaker or to jump into conflict or to be defensive or to uh, get into, for me, codependency was huge, really like severely codependent for a long time. And um, there's just something about a program like that, that really sets you up for success, at least in our story. I know it's not the right fit for everybody, but um, you know, that, that mentorship from a sponsor is, I can't, I mean, you can even put a price on, on yeah. something like that and Changed. made a huge difference. I would say in our, in our marriage for sure. And also our willingness to seek help now when we struggle with things. Yeah. So often well, I'll be in a staff meeting or, any any type of social situation with, with other mental health professionals. Um, and I'll mention that I still see a therapist or I'll occasionally seek help when I need it. And even people in our field will act surprised. Mm-hmm. They'll act surprised that, you know, why aren't you doing 
meeting tonight? Why would you go see it? Why would you get a therapist appointment? Are you are you going to relapse? Are you having big problems? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? But because of the program that we're blessed, you know, to to, to be involved in um, before being in this field, for us, it's 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 all about maintenance. So I don't need to be on the edge of my life falling apart to seek help. Um, I don't need to be on the edge of my marriage falling apart to seek help. I can just be going to therapy because I want to take 100% marriage and take it to 101, you know, take it to one step up. And that's really the way I view it. Um, obviously, we enjoy it, you know, enjoy going to meetings, enjoy, you know, seeing a therapist, it's fun. But I think that we've also been blessed with that perspective, that big perspective that um, this is this is fun and it's doable and it's something that we occasionally go back to. And I think that, you know, premeditated healing that we're able to access, that we're willing to access has really been probably the biggest point that's kept our marriage on track. So mm-hmm. I'm really grateful for that. And just learning that there's always going to be things that I can't see clearly about myself and about my marriage. You know, my sponsor in Al-Anon, um, she was so gentle, but direct and helping me see myself clearly, helping me see Daniel clearly. And now my therapist, um, shout out Dr. Barry. He's the, he does the same, you know, I meet with him every other week and, um, for the same reasons, I'm, I'm really, really comfortable in the place of knowing that, um, I need help. I need support. Even when things are really great, um, at work or in our marriage, you know, Dr. Barry is excellent at helping me see the holes, helping me see my blind spots. And there's power in that, I think. Yeah. Gosh, I think you guys just said so many, so many good things to hit on. I think there was one consistent between both of your stories and then also just how you view bringing in mental health into your marriage. And it's this like concept of, I think Dan, you kept saying this word like willingness. And I would pair that word with just like an openness as well. And I think this is something that's really tough. I mean, being open or, or being willing is so tough sometimes because it requires like an active state of vulnerability. It requires us to constantly be open to, and then Gabby, you just hit on this. So you kind of tied in what I was thinking the whole time of just, you tied in this sense of if you're willing to be open to, to realizing there is always things you still don't know and don't fully comprehend or understand about yourself or about one another, then there's always room for more conversation. And something else you both have in common, and I think all of us, if we get the chance to really slow down with our story, recognize that it was in the midst of suffering that we were able to identify why we're alive, like what it is we care about and why we care about it and how to care about it. And so for both of you, you hit different points and actually still hit points where suffering endured in your life and it taught you something about the way you show up and it asked you to do something with that. So, so really your professional life is just a reflection of kind of everything that brought you to right now mm-hmm. is kind of what I'm hearing. And so yeah. I'm curious if we can talk a little bit about this, because I think this topic of mental health is really, really popular in our society right now. I feel like everyone's talking about mental health. Um, 
in different ways. And I kind of want to talk about just this idea of creating a space to talk about suffering and struggling, because I think that's, that's super important. And also these specific topics when it comes to struggling and when it comes to suffering still feel like there's some type of reputation of shame around that, which Dan, you hit on saying like, even in the mental health professional realm, people are confused why you yourself are seeking tools and resources. So there is still some, some sense of shame around these topics of suffering and around these topics of struggling. Um, Why do you think, why do you think that is? And also like, why do you think this conversation is, is important? Well, we're breaking through generations of stigma. So cultural stigma that there are certain topics that we don't discuss in the household. Gabby was talking about spirituality, sexuality, growing up, especially in established religious organizations, but it can be in in atheist households as well. There's a lot of pressure points. Um, As I'm thinking of sitting around a family dinner, there are certain things that we will not talk about. And a lot of that is culturally common. It happens with a lot of families. There are certain things that we just do not discuss. And there's different reasons behind all of it. Uh, Is it perceived as weakness? Is it perceived as danger? Um, Is it perceived as if we talk about something that makes it real? So Mm -hmm. there, when someone asks, you know, why would you go see a therapist? A lot of the times there's this idea of projection that the person who's asking the question, they might have some stigma that they still attach with that, that comes from maybe their family background which is super, super common. So one of the uh, pillars of, we're, we're both um, uh, clinical counselors. So in California, you've got marriage and family therapists, you've got social workers, psychologists, all that stuff. Um, LPCs, I'm an I'm a, uh, APCC, so I'm behind her. I'm like a year behind her. She's the, she's the boss. Um, You'll catch up. I'll catch up one day, yeah. She is, she's, <laughs> she's ahead. Um, one of those things is advocacy that they encourage us to do. So be outspoken, be loud about normalizing things that have been perceived as dark. Because, you know, we can talk all day about interventions, you know, CBT, person-centered, you know, EMDR, all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is is the relationship with the therapist and the client and simply talking about things, right? Catharsis, simply bringing into life bringing into words the unspeakable things, that simple act of talking about it is extremely healing for the, for the human mind and the human soul. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but advocacy and just, just getting used to talking about hard things um, is a huge deal. And I, I'm, as you say that, I'm, you know, I get to have conversations with myself all the time, but with the people I have the pleasure of working with as well, that we were designed to experience a whole spectrum of emotion, of thoughts, of, you know, all like the world is, is big and we are designed to experience all of that. So, you know, to not acknowledge the low notes, I had somebody explain it to me once, you know, as like a piano, you know, on your right hand, you got the high and on the left hand, you got the low. If you were to play your life with just the high notes on your right hand, it would, it would be a nice melody but it doesn't become full. It doesn't become beautiful music until you incorporate the low notes as well. Um, so, you know, in our life, 
just because we don't acknowledge the low notes and we don't talk about them doesn't mean they're not there. Um, you know, and we, we can become emotionally constipated yeah. <laughs> is how I like to think of it when we don't um, talk about the full spectrum, you know, and, it, and I really think it's dishonoring to our full selves at best and really um, detrimental to our relationships and, and ourselves at worst if we don't acknowledge all of that. That's beautiful, the, the piano metaphor. I haven't heard you use that before, I but know, that makes right? a lot of sense. I wish I could claim it for my own, but that's why it's important to talk to people so who good. are smarter than you because so you get good. fun little analogies. Makes sense. <laughs> I know, right? That is actually like such a beautiful illustration though, which, yeah. So, I mean, I've also been in therapy forever. It feels like, well, I've been in therapy since I was like 17. And when I started therapy, um, I started therapy because... <laughs> The school I was going to made me like I signed a contract that that was part of it. Um, and so I was pretty reluctant of going and also really skeptical. Um, and quickly I realized why, because you talk a lot about emotions and feelings. And up until that point, I honestly really hadn't done any like had any space where that was safe to talk about or explore and I, I like think about this all the time of that poor like therapist who was getting her hours like learning and and she came in we, we came together and she said well how are you feeling and I said I don't do that and she said you don't do what and I said <laughs> I don't do feelings and she said oh <laughs> okay <laughs> and I could just imagine as like now you know, she's like getting her doctorate and, or probably, probably, yeah, she's probably getting her master's actually. And she's just sitting there being like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do with this. Like no school taught me how to deal with some girl who just told me she doesn't do feelings, you know? Um, And then very quickly, we talked about all these like coping strategies before we talked about anything. And I, um, was really fascinated by, by that. And so I became a collector of coping basically um, for a while of just, of just being really curious of why we have coping mechanisms. What are these coping mechanisms? And actually going through therapy opened my eyes to mental health, which is why I chose to study what I did from that point on as well. And so um And a lot of that for me was really just being able to say, okay, if I have to face the fact that I have these feelings, how can I cope with them? And then realizing really quickly that coping actually wasn't going to be enough for me, that with the flood of feelings and the flood of 17 years of navigating and dealing with the trauma that I had been faced with, um, I needed something more than just coping. And I think that this has lent a lot of opportunities for me to learn more. And so I'm curious your perspective on this too, because I feel like a lot of the conversation around mental health right now is really just coping technique, coping strategies. There is a ton on social media right now. I think everyone can self-diagnose themselves with something Uh, at this point. Don't do that. Stop self-diagnosing. Don't do that. Yes. And it's dangerous, but also like there's a gift in that because there's more resource than there's ever been. And I think that that's a beautiful thing. And it's met with like, oh, this could be and is being used so incorrectly. Mm. Um, 
And, and a lot of therapy is navigating what coping mechanisms work for you. But my question is like, how, how do you get past that? How do you work past, like, here's my coping mechanism, but then here's how I get to the root of what's really going on. And what's the difference in that for you? Cause I feel like that's, that's missing in this overall conversation. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Coping skill versus getting to the, the heart of the issue. Oh, this is one of those things that uh, my wonderful husband and I would argue about over, over dinner. Sure. Yeah. I can see that. And I, you know, between the two of us, we really, I, it is a great question because I think you'll have different therapists who will say the past doesn't matter or the root actually doesn't matter. What matters is today and your goals moving forward and how can we get you to thrive and be happy and be joyous today and in the future while you will have other therapists who say none of that matters until you can unroot that deep problem. So, you know, tell me about your mother when you were two years old. Yeah. And those are often two different perspectives that you'll have. I think, I don't know, maybe you can agree or disagree. We both combine both of those. For sure. Um, so I guess I'll let you answer her question first. Oh, I love the way you're putting it. So, um, the, yeah, so we'll get ner- nerdy for a second just for fun because I, I love this stuff. Theoretical background really does matter. Right? You see like his so, eyeballs light up? This stuff is <laughs> yeah. interesting. It really matters um, because it's all about the case conceptualization, right? So the way that you view the client sitting in front of you, coming from your, of course, your personal experience and stuff, but your training really changes the way you're going to approach that client, whether you're looking at coping skills and that is the primary focus of every session is the coping skills. What are we going to do today to get a little bit healthier, that 1% healthier, or if like Gabby said, let's talk about your memory memories from when you were two years old, that is going to matter on, how you're intervening with that client in that moment. Now, our professional backgrounds are very different as well. So if I'm dealing with a client who is shooting um, fentanyl on a daily basis and they're having consistent overdoses, I would love to quickly go back to the, the dinner table with mom and dad, go back to that trauma, go back to that, those feelings of you know rejection, abandonment, isolation, loneliness. But after leaving that session with me today, that client could die. So in terms of coping skills, I, the, the first thing that we're taught is, 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 is safety for the client. And, and safety is different things for different clients, but especially working with addiction, sometimes you really do um, focus on the relapse prevention and the coping skills first. And then over time, you can go into a deeper work, which is, like you said, cast after the real healing does happen. It's going to be in the team. EMDR, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That helps um, flow back. The client can flow back in time to figure out where those first negative emotions, those first negative behaviors, those first negative thoughts about themselves really came up. And then from there, they snowballed into patterns in their lives that are uh, possibly fueling that addiction or that anxiety or that phobia that they're struggling with. That's bringing them in in for counseling. Um, And... uh, but that takes a little bit of time and it takes a tremendous amount of uh, respect and trust with the therapist to be willing to let that person into your heart and into your mind that way. That takes a tremendous amount of courage and vulnerability like you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's where the client, you know, shows that their, their true willingness 
and uh, their true courage is when they're they're able to start talking about those those foundational issues. Sure, and I I don't you know I don't know how to directly answer the question, Kath, but you know I I think the I I tend to lean towards the background work, that deep stuff. Um, just my client base, you know, I am in private practice, so they are generally stable. We're not dealing with somebody who's um, at high risk. So we have the luxury of time to delve into the deep stuff. And even so, you know, I can have people who get stuck there um, because at the end of the day, it's still information. It's just information about, you know, those those stuck points that Daniel talked about. Um, and until I decide to apply it to today and take action on that today, it's still not going to make a difference. So that's why I think both are important to understand what got me here today, you know, that nature versus nurture. Um, But then taking action on it now is what really makes the life change happen. I think. Yes. I think. Why, why do you wake up in the morning and do what you do? Like, why is that? I'm going to leave that there. Why do you wake up and do what you do? Um, well, I would say in my case, it's giving back what was given to me. So my spiritual background plays a huge role in that, my, my beliefs about spirituality. Mm-hmm. And it's also about the men and women in my life that for time and effort and encouragement, um, for some kid, for some some homeless guy who really a lot of signs were that I wasn't going to make it, that I didn't deserve it. You know, it's causing damage in my life, damage in the world. And there were some people that showed me um, absolute supreme grace uh, that I did not deserve that came out of nowhere. And to this day, um, those moments, those conversations, uh, those little things, a little thing like a bus pass when I really needed a bus pass to make mm-hmm. it to that that get well job and detox, you know, um, just something so simple as that uh, dramatically changed my life, mm-hmm. changed my entire world. They're the reason that I am moderately, you know, as stable as I can be today, you know, <laughs> trying to hold things together. It's the reason that um, I was able to uh, lure her into accepting marriage, right? Years later. You got me. Um, but there was, there were several moments like that. And so when you say what, you know, gets you going in the morning. What what brings you into your career? What brings you into work that day? I remember those those moments of grace at the very front of my mind. Uh, usually on the drive to work. Usually on the drive to work. So I remember those people and those conversations, and I get that the goosebump uh, feeling on my forearms. You know, where the hand hair stands up, and you get that that it feels spiritual to me. It feels feels spiritual. This is purpose. This is repayment. Um, Hopefully, maybe somewhere down the line, there might be one or two people that have those same memories from me um, where they really needed a moment of grace. And, and I was mm-hmm. I was blessed to be in that situation with them. So mm-hmm. that's my hope. What about you? That's such a good answer. And just to be clear, he didn't lure me into marriage. It was totally voluntary. And I was I knew what was happening. So I just want to be very clear. <laughs> um, I courted you. You, d- you did. And you did an excellent job. I, I like that. This man is very romantic and suave. Um, I think if you were to catch me day to day, Cassidy, I would answer that question differently. So I'll give you my answer today. The reason that I do 
wake up and go to work as a therapist. And I would say probably two reasons. The first is for my daughter. Um, she's almost four. And I would love to help be a small piece of creating a world where mental health is a normal conversation, where um, she can feel free to share hard things, to explore hard things, to ask questions about herself and her role in the world and in a family. Um, and then I think as I think about that, too, I, I go to work for the people in my life who didn't have the same opportunity. You know, I think of um, my parents or, you know, my dad being in law enforcement. Hey, dad, <laughs> you know, in a culture and a generation where, you know, if you had a hard day at work, you just kind of got to sack up and show up for your family and then sack up and show up at work the next day. And if there was something troubling you, that was a, um, a defect, a moral defect in who you are. Um, you know, and even thinking back to his parents, even more so, you know, the World War II generation of, yeah. you know, mental health wasn't a thing. It was not a thing. Um, and so I think to honor those people in the past, by giving space to people now to explore those things um, is really important to me. That's well put. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's just really, it's really so needed what you two are doing individually and then together, because I do, I wanna highlight both. I think individually you show up for people every day and you, often have to put your own needs on the back burner to really be present with someone else's needs. And so I think that that in itself is recognizable and important. And then I can, I can attest to seeing this in your marriage and especially getting to pace really closely with Gabby and knowing how much support and confidence that she has in you, Dan, to really be able to fall apart when she needs to and trust um, that you're a constant for her in the midst of the inconsistency she faces on a day-to-day -day basis is just like such a beautiful illustration of support and balance, I think. And so I just want to thank both of you for that. And also just, yeah, just again, I think the intent and the desire to have both of you kind of share is because, I mean, for the giving gifts, our whole intent is to really create possibilities for individuals to identify their gift, right? To identify where they've come from, where they're at now, where they're going. And that requires taking a harder look at some challenging things. And mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to know what resources and what tools and what people and what advocates um, there are for mental health right now, because I think moving forward, if we're going to see any change in our world, if we're going to see any resemblance of connection and wholeness on this side of life, like we're going to have to acknowledge one another in a different way. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm going to give you guys just an opportunity 
<laughs> this is, sounds funny because it's not the giving us podcast has not necessarily been like an advice podcast, but I think in this sense, your advice would be so um, appreciated. So if, if there was a person listening to this, who's just struggling, who may or may not be already receiving, um, using some mental health tools, so therapy or coping strategies or whatever that is for them, um, just from your own perspective, why, like, how would you encourage that person to work through their own suffering and also acknowledging that there's a purpose to showing up tomorrow, to like making it through this? Just a lighthearted question. So the end of yeah. it almost no big like deal. you were talking about like suicidal stuff at the end there. Cats I think that. suicidal is a hard word to use sometimes, you know, and, and this might be um, and I shared this at the beginning, or I'm going to share this is that I just lost a, a friend this past week, um, who, yeah, I mean, she was doing all the right things, right? So she was in therapy, she was on the right medication, she was doing X, Y, and Z and navigating through this. And so I think suicide is super real for me right now. But I also think that it's honestly really real for our entire world right now to, to acknowledge, like, why am I actually alive? So I don't want to just say like suicidal as in you're a person who is on the brink. That's a whole different conversation. But I think for, for pretty much anyone who's kind of dealing with today's society or is close to really any person who's struggling, these are the conversations that we're having out loud or just in our head right now is why am I doing this? Yeah, it's a good question. The reason... No, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your friend, Cassie. I can't even imagine what that's like. And that does seem to be, we're hearing about that more and more often. And it's, um, it just shakes your world every time you hear something about that. Um, the reason that I was asking specifically about that word is, again, the stigma thing. I, I, and I think you, you put it really well that a lot of people do um, struggle with thought sometimes. And I think that it's important under that advocacy role that we have, that we normalize that and say that we can expect that there will be lows in our lives. There will be times where we will struggle with very, very negative thoughts and very negative urges. And it's important to understand that you're, you're not evil. You know, we're not broken. We're not doomed because we have these thoughts, because we have these emotions, because we have these moments of hopelessness. Mm -hmm. I think that those are conversations that we do need to normalize. And those are the hard ones. And we used to be trained, therapists used to be trained that you do not talk about these things. The more you talk about them, it'll actually amplify them. It's not seen that way anymore. Now it's, we normalize, we empathize, we invite people into room, in relationships and in conversations where you can talk about these things and the people you're talking to don't freak out. They don't judge you and say, there must be something really wrong with you because that's absolutely not true. Um, it's, it's hard to be a human. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to be a person, period. Not even any time in history. It's just hard to be a person, man. This is a hard world to live in sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing, like you said, how advice mm -hmm. or encouragement I might give to someone who's struggling in, in, in a dark moment would be relationships. Is there someone in your life that you know in your heart, in your gut, will accept you the way you are that you can talk about hard things with. And 
And saying that, I do understand that there are some people that they don't have that one person they can talk to. In those cases, again, I want to normalize over and over again professional help. Um, we can talk about specific resources, psychology today, insurances, um, uh, spiritual programs, nonprofits, churches, different ways to access those online or in person. But finding a relationship with someone professional or otherwise, and that's it, period. Just someone you can talk to. And then from, from then on, um, everyone's path goes a different way in terms of how they treat that. But uh, normalizing it, finding a relationship, having those conversations with someone, mm-hmm. the first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, I wish I could boil something small down that's just like bite size. But I think, um, you know, and I'm going to say this and I don't say it flippantly. It feels like a cliche almost. But what I would tell somebody is that uh, you're worth it to exist, to take up space, to have an opinion, to have an experience, to have thoughts and emotions that um, just because you are a human is enough to be deserving of taking up space. Um, and I and I think that gets lost on us a lot that, you know, I have to um, um, produce or put out something or um, give something to be worthy of existence. Um, but that is just, it's not true. Yeah. I, I'm worthy to take up space just because I am. Um, and, you know, that, Take that where you will, but that's true today and that's true tomorrow and that will continue to be true. Um, and, you know, I'll just kind of piggyback off of you, babe, and that and that's really supported by research. The, the intimate relationships, you know, are a huge component of meaningful living. Um, and so is meaningful work. And I don't mean work like um, nine to five, Monday through Friday job, although that could be it. But, you know, volunteering or um, being of service in some way or being a sister or being a husband or whatever I am participating in in the world that is meaningful to me, that gives me some kind of purpose, is huge uh, along with that, those intimate relationships. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. So thankful for both of you. <laughs> and I know, I know that question came from a little bit of like left fields because I, but I, I just think it's super important in, in the conversation as a whole. And so thank you guys for just showing up in that. And yeah, honestly, like, thank you for doing what you do and being committed to learning and growing. I think that's a big a big component of being alive is just realizing we're constantly learning. And so what we think we know today is going to transform into something different or something more whole or something more complete tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I just, yeah, I just am so thankful uh, for that and for this conversation and just that we get to have these conversations and yeah. that we'll continue to have these conversations. I mean, yeah. So that is an exciting um, thing for me to point out. I don't know if either want you guys want me to say this, but I'm going to anyways. Um, before we started recording, Gabby and Jan were talking about how they're working on their own podcast. So this is a little accountability to say this on something that's going to be produced is that um, <laughs> that is something I really hope 
um, happens because again, the more conversations we can have around understanding one another and understanding how our brains work and how our brains are wired and how we respond to being alive, I think is so, so, so important. So, and both of you just have so much perspective that's really important. And the way you two listen to each other, I'm so glad that the three of us got to do this together because it is just such a gift to watch you listen to one another and to constantly be receiving from one another. And so I'm just thankful to be learning with you guys and from you and yeah. <laughs> I remember Same I remember walking in after that date night and Cassie, I think the book that you were reading was that yellow positive yes. psychology book. And like yep. my neurons started firing. I'm like, this is a like soul, yeah. you know, <laughs> that she's, on our wavelength yeah. right maybe a little psychology nerd stuff going on here like she's cool she gets it yeah because like you never know what those books do to someone's life like that book that you're reading Cassie was actually a really big deal for me when we had our daughter it was one of those um, insomnia the baby's not sleeping books that I kind of blasted through and, and really really helped me mm-hmm. um, so just little simple things like that that I thought was really cool um, I do remember that moment specifically me too and, yeah yeah we could be psychology nerds like all day, but I'm not quite as cool of a nerd as you two and all your like sci-fi fantasy. Like I wouldn't say that. Um, there I see you looking for a real good laugh. I got a joke for you. Are you ready? Why didn't Han Solo enjoy his dinner? Why? It was too chewy. <laughs> that was good. Is that an original? <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Giving Gifts. Like, share, and subscribe. This show is the shit. Spread some love and joy. Know that you're a gift.